Welcome to the MacroFab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, James the Bald Engineer, Lewis. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 141. So our guest this week may or may not be an engineer and may or may not have hair. James Lewis's passion for teaching non-engineers has led him to create the Bald Engineer blog and the Ad Ohms video tutorial series. With 15 years of experience in electronics, marketing, sales, and teaching, James boils seemingly difficult concepts down to the core so that anyone can learn what they need to finish that next great project. So James, is there anything you would like to add to that uh, extensive bio? <laughs> yeah, I guess let me talk a little bit about where my professional experience has taken me. So right out of school, I worked at Agilent Technologies, which is now Keysight, and I'm sure next week they'll have an, another name as an FAE for oscilloscopes and logic analyzers. And I worked with uh, computer customers. So I was doing like front side bus, memory bus, those kinds of uh, applications. And then after about 10 years of that, I switched to components and I worked at Kemet, which is a primarily a capacitor company, both as an FAE and marketing for about seven years. And just recently, I made the transition back to test and measurement. And now I'm working at Rota and Schwartz as a product manager for oscilloscopes. So I've actually never heard of uh, Roden Schwartz. So is is there, did they make something that I would recognize or? Um, yes. So uh, Rota, like Rota and Schwartz is a German company and they are primarily known for RF test equipment. Okay. And they are most famous for uh, 4G test systems. Now they do, they've done a lot of other cellular stuff too, but for the 4G generation, they they really had a lot of product in that space. And so without question, the phones you have, regardless of vendor, have probably been tested on something from Rota and Schwartz. Gotcha. That's cool. The first time I uh, I heard of them was on the uh, uh, EEV blog. One of the one of the videos he did a uh, something on some test equipment from them. And uh, Dave was absolutely drooling on the test equipment. <laughs> His, his, his ideas with it is like, you do not get better than that equipment. <laughs> yeah. It's so, so their whole entry into scopes is kind of interesting. And I know that's not what we're going to talk about today, but they've only been in the scope market for uh, eight to 10 years. And so that's why I'm not kidding when I say they were primarily known as an RF company. And so it's interesting to look at a scope from the perspective of RF engineers and there are things about it where it's like every time they tell me about something new that I haven't figured out yet or haven't learned about yet, it's like, really, you guys figured that out. It's like, holy cow. You know, it's, <laughs> it, it really is drool worthy. So, James, what are we going to talk about today? So I thought we might talk about something called a capacitor. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with this component. Nope, never heard of it. I thought we were talking about resistors, but... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually pretty excited because we've talked about doing something like this for quite a while on the podcast. And I uh, just kind of, I guess it kind of scared Parker and I a little bit. So uh, <laughs> I decided to phone an expert. <laughs> yeah. Oh, are, are they going to join us later? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, they are. That's that's <laughs> that's the answer to that. <laughs> Yeah, actually, you know, it's funny because uh, I think a lot of us in school, 
we uh, we sort of learned about capacitors and we were told things like, you know, they change with frequency. Um, the only lesson I remembered was that there's polar and nonpolar and you don't put polarized in backwards. And then that was sort of it. And even when I went and joined Kemet, so I was intervie- interviewing for this job as a FAE and I asked at some point, why do you guys need FAEs? I mean, how hard is it to pick a capacitor? And um, as a challenge, the hiring manager said, here, let me show you. And that led me into that s- stage of my career. So uh, what's what's the thing that actually charges up and holds that storage for, uh, you know, running these headphones? Well, that'd be a battery. That's well, a that'd be capacitor. <laughs> <laughs> so capacitors, yeah. what kind of capacitors are we talking about today? So not polarized and non-polarized. Right. So there's all kinds of capacitor types out there, but I think the most common and almost anyone that's done anything with electronics knows about ceramic capacitors. So what do we normally, oh, I, I guess some background, they're normally called MLCC, which is multi-layer ceramic capacitors. Correct. So why is that? Well, it's because they are actually literally designed with multiple layers. And so you can just picture a, if you were to make a sandwich and you had bread and cheese Uh, you would just kind of stack up bread, cheese, bread, cheese, bread, cheese. That's what a ceramic capacitor is. Your bread is typically barium titanate. And then the electrode is something like nickel. And it's a really thin metallization on top of that, uh, that, that ceramic layer. And then those just get stacked up. And the more stacks there are, the more capacitance you get. So, so out of curiosity, this is a slight tangent uh, and we don't have to go deep into this. Uh, are you aware of like the actual nitty gritties of how that's accomplished? Do they lay a layer down and then apply some uh, metal to it and then just keep repeating? <laughs> they old? take the nickel out of a jam jar and kind of just spread all over the platter. They spread it like peanut butter on some ceramic. All right. So let, let's talk a minute about that because I, I have a trivia question and I want everybody listening at home to try to guess along with this. So let's say we start with raw material and we get we go all the way through production to capacitors in a reel ready to ship somewhere. How much time do you guys think, ha, how much time elapses between start from materials to parts are ready to ship? I'm guessing because this is like a, this is a trivia question, I'm guessing it's, it's a, an extreme of some sort. So it either takes a long time or a short time. <laughs> and given, given the cost of a capacitor, I bet you it's ripping fast. You guys gotta take a guess, and then I'll. Tell you. <laughs> I'm gonna take the. It's, I'm gonna take like the the Carl Sagan, where like if you're gonna bake the cake, you gotta create the universe. So long time, like you know, a couple months maybe. Okay, couple of months. That's one extreme. Yeah, that's like you know, it, I'm talking like you know, at least it coming out of the ground somewhere, and then refining, going to production, and transporting halfway across the world, and. Then ending up in Mauser. Yeah, yeah, actually. <laughs> okay, so, um, Stephen, did you want to make a guess, or are you just going to go with really short? Yeah, let's uh, <laughs> like, here. Let, let's let's say I'm I'm just going to go the complete opposite extreme. Let's say it takes thirty seconds from nothing to real. Okay, so you both are wrong, and to the extremes. Um, on average, it's about two to three weeks, and there's lots of it depends on uh, it depends on a handful of things, but you're, it's on the order of two to three weeks from when the manufacturer starts mixing powders to when parts are on a reel. And in that two week period, almost the entire time 
they're spent in an oven. And so it's, it's, yeah, um, they take a long time to make, but you also make like tens of thousands of them in a single batch. And so you get a lot of, uh, speed because of that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's about two weeks, which is when I was selling caps, I used to tell people, you know, keep that in mind when you ask for samples, because, you know, if we say the lead time is four weeks, it's really two weeks because it's going to take us two weeks just to, just to bake the things. So is it baked because of the ceramic? Yeah. So, so back to Steven's question about kind of the nitty gritty, I'll give you the really high level view. And I think this is helpful because I think this is one of these things that we sort of all take for granted as electrical engineers that we just buy this capacitor and it does what we want. So ceramic, and by the way, this is totally focused on ceramic capacitors. Almost nothing I tell you applies to other dielectrics. Every dielectric has its own process. Um, and so with, with ceramics, you start out with powder and basically the powders are effectively for X7R is going to be barium, uh, titanium, and um, a couple of binders to sort of just mix the powder up. That turns, that gets uh, some water gets added to that to turn it into, into a slurry. And then that slurry is poured onto or cast onto a plastic sheet. And so literally at this stage in the, the production, you have a flexible ceramic material that gets rolled up into a roll. The next step is you start to unroll that and then you take a silkscreen process and you silkscreen an electrode pattern on top of it. And so if you actually look at pictures or get to see pictures of this, you can actually kind of look at the electrode pattern and you can sort of see the individual layers of the capacitor um, get printed onto the material. From that point, the whole sheet is taken off the carrier, the plastic carrier, and then the ceramic layers are started to be stacked up. Uh, next, they go through a cutting process, and depending on the size of the cap, they're either sliced or um, die cut. And then around that point, they go into an oven. And so the oven is basically there to bake out the binders and um, basically center the, the ceramic material. And it, like I said, it takes a couple of weeks of process to do that. It's They're not actually in, like, they're not at 2,000 degrees C for two weeks straight. There's a whole process that has, that has to happen to uh, reliably bake them. The cool thing is when they come out of the oven, they're about 50% smaller than when they went in. And that's just from all the organic shrinking or the organics get burned out and then the material shrinks as it centers. Well, that's cool. So I guess you, it, you'd have to, you would design your capacitors. Your 0805 would actually be a 1206 before it goes in. Well, yeah, 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 effectively. But you know, and this, this actually, since you brought that up, Parker, you know, something that, um, uh, I'll, I'll lead back into that so we can edit. I, I, sure. I just, I just realized, I just realized I was calling you Parker and Steven, Steven, without making sure that I, I knew what you guys looked like. Nope. <laughs> nope. You, you, you picked correctly. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, like, it just occurred to me. I was like, I'm, I think, cause like you guys sound different to me since you're at normal speed instead of two X when I usually listen. Oh, so we sound like chipmunks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so since you asked that, Parker, you know, a question that comes up sometimes is, or let me rephrase, the question I had was, do we know before the process starts what's going to come out on the other end? And what I was thinking of is, okay, do we just batch all the, do we just make a batch of stuff and say, okay, well, these are 10, this one's 10 microfarad, this one's 15, this one's 22. And the reality is every case voltage and capacitance has its own recipe. And so, you know, ahead of time, everything that's going into place to make a specific part number. 
Uh, now, tolerance gets measured and sorted at the end, but case voltage capacitance, you know what that's going to be when you go into the process. So tolerance is actually sometimes bend then. Oh, it's always bend. Okay, that's interesting. I thought that would be more on the design end, but yeah, that's that's interesting. So, so would you have a different uh, chemical mixture for different package sizes? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so when we look at ceramics, there's a couple different types. There's like X7R, C0G, and then, uh, well, let me rephrase that. There's a couple different types. There's C0G, and then there's a whole class that are X7R, X5R, Y5B that all have those letters. So that C0G is class one. Uh, everything else is basically class two and three. Class two and three is mostly made out of barium titanate. And then for a specific recipe, you'll have different binders or what um, what uh, one of the gentlemen I used to work with, he would just call magic fairy dust that makes <laughs> differences in the makeup of the capacitor to, to make the whole process work. That sounds intense. It sounds like there's a lot that goes behind it and probably an enormous amount of trial and error. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the biggest eye opener for me was capacitors are almost as complex to design and manufacture as an integrated circuit. Now I'm not talking like microcontrollers, but like, if you look at like a a linear voltage regulator or something relatively simple, and I'm not trying to disparage people that make regulators, I'm just saying in terms of IC process, it's a relatively simple process. I think capacitors are easily as complex as that. Yeah, the uh, what's interesting about that is it's the re- it's it's a lot it sounds like a lot more like material science than electrical engineering is. Oh yeah, yeah, and I can so like um, and these were we, these were shared publicly, so I can I can tell you these numbers. So when I was at Kemet, we had about ten thousand employees worldwide, roughly. Let's just round, and of that, we had something like uh, over fifteen hundred with an engineering degree. Um, however, of those 1500, only about 100 had electrical engineering, almost all the other engineering disciplines were either some form of science, chemical or material. Hmm. That's cool. Very neat. So, so I guess, uh, one more quick question on that. Uh, a lot of times when you, when you open up a electronics textbook or you go look up a capacitor on Wikipedia, it'll show two plates next to each other and say, this is a capacitor. That's not the case in ceramic capacitors, correct? It's not two plates. There's a bunch, right? So, okay. That's, it's not the case with any capacitor. Um, Ceramic is probably, there are monolithic ceramics. So like, um, so there's for AC, uh, AC mains, there are X and Y capacitors. And so like, if you look at an X or Y ceramic capacitor, it is literally just a chunk of ceramic material with, uh, silver electrodes on either side. So it's literally like the capacitor drawing, but almost every other capacitor type outside of even ceramics are some other form. I mean, technically the two plates are there, but it's not as clean as what the diagrams we like to look at are. Great. So one of the big thing that gets uh, brought up a lot in uh, ceramic capacitors is this big part shortage yeah. that we've been having. And this is actually <laughs> something that you wanted to bring up, James. And it's something that, you know, our, our listeners and everyone on our Slack channel complains a lot about is, you know, they design with this one capacitor and they go to make, you know, order it online and they have to go switch the part out sometimes multiple times. It's a question that I get asked quite a bit and I've been outside of Kemet for about a year. And so I've had an opportunity to look back and sort of ask, how did we get to this point? Because 
it sort of seems like the opposite of what you would think as a manufacturer that everybody should have known this was coming. And I don't think we did. So here's, here's what I noticed happened over the last couple of years. Um, the first thing, and let me see if you guys agree with this, uh, are there more or less electronics being packed into automobiles today? There are more electronics, more electronics, right? So we're seeing tons of stuff happening there. Um, in the aerospace and defense industry, uh, is that becoming more commercial or more governmental based? Commercial based. Yep. Right. So, you know, we see this and it's happening even with some of the stuff that the ESA is doing is more focused around private sector versus a more governmental approach. And that's important because traditional design and traditional requirements are sort of getting skirted. And so we're seeing a lot of aerospace and defense. So that means, you know, uh, stuff that goes into space and stuff that only has to work one time. Um is starting to move away from military grade products. And they're saying, hey, why don't we just use automotive grade because cars last a long time, so they must be good parts. And then even in industrial applications, we started to see traditional film and electrolytic uh, designs transition to ceramics. And again, they wanted to have automotive grade parts. And so what sort of happened is these three macro things happen and it puts a big constraint on how many, or it puts a lot of constraint on how many automotive grade parts are available. And so if you combine that with the electronics industry, so Murata a couple years ago said they're getting out of the large case sizes. So that creates, um, it created disruption. I won't say it did bad or good. It just disrupted the capacity uh, of the industry. And second is to invest in a ceramic line is on the order of tens of millions of dollars. It's not like it's a, oh, I get a million dollar machine to do this. It's it's a significant investment. And so all manufacturers have been reticent to sort of invest into that area. And then the third thing is, is that what's affected ceramics is because they keep getting thinner in layers. We Technology allows for thinner layers, lower voltages, higher capacitances. You're starting to displace some of these other capacitor technologies. And so you you sort of take, okay, so the industry moved people towards more ceramics and outside of the capacitor or component industry, everybody was moving towards ceramics. So it shouldn't be a big surprise that we got to a point where all of a sudden there's less ceramics available. Yeah. So how did, did the industry just not think about that or it did it just snowball all at once and hit? Yeah, I think I think it's more of a it, it was almost like a snowball is probably the closest. I mean, I really feel like this all occurred over the last two to three years. I, I'd so, say even less than that. Like, well, what, what I mean is so I'm looking at like the macro trend, like okay. the car content. Uh, the other the other one I meant to mention is in electronics, um, switching power supplies. Their frequencies are going up. So you need smaller capacitors. So that draws even more elect, uh, ceramic content into the design. And so I think. And, and then the final thing, and this is this is the one that I think people miss because if you're not in the industry, you don't really see it. There's just been a huge constraint on automotive grade parts. Um, Non-automotive customers think that automotive grade parts are magical for some reason. And it turns out we can, or manufacturers can charge a premium for them. And so that's, that's where they've put their focus is how do we get more for these premium parts uh, without realizing... Yeah, that AEQ 2000 certification is just magic. Yeah, which is ironic because most tier one manufacturers test to Q200 anyway. <laughs> I mean, it's, <laughs> it, you know, they, they might skirt it a little bit for their highest capacitance value, but most test plans are based on that, that 
that reliability document anyway. And I think the thing that most people miss is a automotive grade ceramic capacitor is made with the same materials and same equipment as a commercial grade. So quality wise, they're not really that much different. It's they've been they they have higher reliability standards, but quality wise, it's like for two given parts, if one is ceramic or commercial, one is automotive, there's more test done on the automotive, but from a failure point of view, they're almost the same. Hmm. So you, I guess you just maybe assume just a slight bit more risk uh, on the one that's not tested. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think what he's getting at is for your Arduino, you don't need a fancy dancy ceramic capacitor. You, yeah. 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 So you don't need an auto grade for most applications. I think so for commercial applications, it's really it's really overkill, in my personal opinion. Uh, but where if you look at, say, like the aerospace uh, defense industry, they're used to buying a 10 cent part uh, along with ten dollars worth of test. And so they look at these automotive grade parts, which are only 15 cents and they come with a, a packet of paperwork. So like, hey, that sounds great. But like I said, they're really not all that much better. It's reliability wise. They're roughly the same. Now, again, the exception is if you look at the highest capacitance value of a ceramic commercial series, you won't find them in the automotive series because they don't pass the, the uh, AEC Q200. Just, just out of curiosity, what, what kind of range would that be in terms of value? So, um, oh, that's a good question. Um, Can I guess? I mean, I, yeah. 0805 10 microfarad. That's pretty, that's pretty big. I mean, well, because I think you can get a 10 mic 805 in X5R. X7R, you could, you, if you can't, then you probably get a 4.7. And so let's just say that's the case is that on an X7R, which is slightly better than X5R, um, 805, 10 volt, uh, the max you get is 4.7 mic. So that you'd see that in a commercial series. In the automotive series, you may only see 2.2 mic as the maximum and it's because that design isn't quite pushing the limits of the process yeah that makes sense and, and i guess uh we, we touched on it just a little bit before but just to make sure for for any of the listeners that are not aware the the kind of the, the phrases and terms we, or acronyms we we call out x5r x7r that that refers to the temperature coefficient which mm-hmm. that's about as far as I know what it actually means. I mean, I'm sure it's a chemical composition and it's, it's a, a measure of how much capacitance change happens over temperature, correct? Correct. Actually, I was, I was getting a little bit nervous because there's only two, two ways you can go. Usually it's uh, the temperature coefficient, which is totally correct. Or a lot of people say it's the different dielectric type and that's sort of correct. Um, even within, I remember when I was at Kemet, we would even call C0G and X7R different dielectrics. And technically, they are completely different material sets, but that's not what the three-letter designator. It's exactly what you said, Stephen. It's, it's the temperature coefficient. And so the three letters actually tell you the characteristic of the part. So X7R, the X is, um, X is negative 55, 7 is 125, and R is plus or minus 15% which means across that temperature range, negative 55 to 125, the capacitance can change by as much as 15%. And just a quick pro tip is that it's almost never plus. It's almost always minus. (laughs) The plus there is a marketing thing. (laughs) It is. And well, and it it actually covers, there's some really strange 
dielectrics that depending on how the voltage you apply to them, they'll actually go up a little bit and then come back down. And so it sort of just is a catch all, but you're, you're not going to go buy a ceramic capacitor from DigiKey that goes up in capacitance across its temperature range. It's that they're just, that's not going to happen. This may be a bit of a, uh, a question that we may not be able to answer, but I've, I'm always curious, what, what is it that actually is changing with temperature? Uh, oh, I think it's um, how fast your electrons are moving around. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, you convince them a little bit more with some heat. <laughs> uh, so that that's actually um, for other characteristics. That's true. On a ceramic, uh, that's that's not what temperature does. Like if you look at a, um, if you look at like a um, uh, aluminum electrolytic, it actually is a matter of the ions move slower in the dielectric when they get colder. Um, not in the dielectric, the ions move slower in the electrolyte when it gets colder, which causes the ESR to go up. And aluminum electrolytics are basically an RC structure. So if you have more resistance, you have less capacitance. Um, Honestly, I don't. Rem- in, in, it maybe maybe it is the electron speed changes. I can't imagine that's what it is though. But I offhand, I'm I'm drawing a blink on what the what the temperature, why the temperature affects it. Yeah, no, no worries. Um, the, yeah, I just, that's always been. I've always been curious as to why, and I'm sure it has a lot to do with the chemistry behind it. My my guess is it's uh, that kind of temperature range is actually changing the shape of the barium titanate's molecule. And that would affect the permittivity, which gets into the DC bias effect, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, but I'm not positive. That's why they shift with temperature and shame on me for not knowing. (laughs) Well, I guess we can just segue right into like, why do ceramics lose capacitance? And one of them we just talked about was temperature. So what's the other reasons? So we, we mentioned the first one, uh, which was tolerance, right? So right off the bat, um, you buy capacitors that are 5 10 or 20% of their nominal value. And just a hint as you go, so we, so when you look at a, a chart for a capacitor, across one axis will be case size, across another axis will be capacitance, and then voltage gets worked in there somehow. And so the higher you go in, in capacitance, voltage, or smaller in case size, the... Um, the tolerance, or as you get closer to the edges, the tolerance values tend to be closer to 20% and not 5% or less, right? It's, it's you're, you're pushing the, the process to the limit. So it wasn't unusual for us to make a 200 mic- or 220 microfarad capacitor. And then internally, we kind of laugh and say, well, really, it's only two, 200 because we're going to sell it as a 220 at minus 20%. Um, but yeah, tolerance is probably, and I think tolerance is the one that we all probably know the best, right? You know, you do a search on a on a um, distributor, you can see tolerance easily in one of the columns. Um, so that's the first one. The second one we talked, we just talked about was temperature, and then the third one. You guys know about DC bias effect? Yes. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Very bad thing. Depends. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is with DC bias is um, we'll, we'll talk more about it. Yeah, but is it's one of those dirty little secrets of like capacitor data sheets because sometimes they don't even say what they are. You have to dig even farther. And I always find that interesting as well as you just don't learn about this thing at all in school. And it's really the most, I feel is like one of the most important specifications for a capacitor. (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> you, you know, I, actually, so uh, let me interject here. I think one of the things that, that kind of sucks about electronics is in general, it's not the easiest thing to learn the theory behind stuff. And then as soon as you're like, oh, I, I finally understand the theory, everyone comes up and is like, everything you just learned is kind of wrong. <laughs> There's a lot more here. <laughs> so so DC bias for capacitors sort of remind me of learning about the, the, um, the, the voltage threshold from MOSFET. It's like you sort of get people to the first level of understanding of what is VGS. And then you can kind of, you can kind of see if they understand by switching it from an N type to a P type. If they can comprehend what a negative voltage means, then it's like, okay, I got it. Or they, they've got it. And then the next step is, okay, you understand that that is the, that the maximum number is the minimum number to consider for it to start to turn on. And then you just get that totally glossed overlook. It's like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> what is this? What is this mythical voltage? Um, yeah. So DC bias, let's, let's talk a minute about that. And I, I want to go a little bit deeper than I normally do uh, just because, um, well, you're it, in the right spot to, for it. it. It's fun. It, yeah. You guys are, the, I think the right people to, to hear about this. So DC bias, if uh, a listener is not aware of it, as we're talking about, with ceramic capacitors, and it's only certain ceramic capacitors, as you apply a DC voltage, their capacitance drops. So even though it's a 100 microfarad capacitor, and let's for make numbers easy, let's say it's a 10 volt, 100 microfarad capacitor. When you apply five volts, it is not unreasonable for it to lose about 30% of its capacitance, meaning at five volts, it's only about a 70 microfarad capacitor. And at 10 volts, it may be as low as 25 uh, it may lose 75% of its capacitance, meaning that this um, capacitor is actually only about 25 microfarads, even though the part number clearly says it's 100 microfarads. And capacitor manufacturers just expect everybody to know that. And as Parker was alluding to, um, they're really good about not telling you what's going on in the data sheet. Uh, what I think is even worse is some capacitor manufacturers will put a typical graph for their DC loss or DC bias, we we call it, we always call it DC bias effect. Um, I know other people use different terminology for it, but that's the, that's what I'm talking about when I say DC bias or DC loss. So we, you would see a typical graph, which personally always frustrated me because there are a lot of factors that go into what is the DC bias of a particular capacitor. It's not as simple as Capacitors from vendor A lose this much and capacitor vendor B lose this much. It, it, I mean, even within a case and voltage different or within, um, within, a, when a, within a case size, different rated voltages will have different loss factors associated with them. Yeah. The, uh, the ones I've seen the, when you actually start digging into it, you, a lot of times you have to find that specific part numbers, mm -hmm. kind of specialized data sheet that has that in there. Yep. Uh, that graph. Yeah. And yeah. So yeah. Yeah. And actually it's, it's sort of a, it's sort of one of these catch 22s in a way because um, capacitor manufacturers aren't actually trying to hide this information. It's just, it's really difficult to figure out how do you, how do you convey it to somebody in a reasonable, concise manner? And so, okay. So like I mentioned before, I used to work at Kemet. At Kemet, we have a online simulation tool called KSIM, which will actually plot the graph for specific parts because we actually measured it, and then we're, that's how we convey it. Um, uh, uh, now that I don't work for Kemet, I can say uh, Murata has an uh, online tool called SimSurfer, which provides similar information. Um, the only caution I'll give you there is, based on what I can see, Murata looks like it's 
they're doing everything based entirely on math. While at Kemet, we had a combination of math uh, models that we did w- along with measured um, measured data just to make sure that our models seem correct. Um, so I, I'm not saying that to say something negative about Murata. I'm just saying that's another thing you have to consider on top of everything else is, okay, what is this data really showing me? And so that's just something to, to keep in mind when you're looking at that. Yeah, I was going to bring up is Kemet and, and Murata were the two companies I've found that like, it's very easy to find that information. I think AV, is it AVR? AVX. AVX. Uh, sometimes you can find their data sheet for their part easily it's sometimes mm-hmm. somewhere in the digikey page sometimes you have to go to their website and find it uh, yeah yeah they, i think in terms of their online tools i just don't know it as well uh but they're actually they're getting better uh you know one thing like and i'm not trying to plug kim at a whole bunch but it's just what i know so for distributors like digikey or mauser or newark um we actually created part number specific data sheets and the idea was i as an engineer found it frustrating and i'm not saying they did it because of me but I like this about what we did is I hate it like going to a ceramic part and downloading a 45 page PDF that is like the entire family. It's the family. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's practically everyone does that. Right. And so we're like, all right, so we, we, we had built an entire system so that we could actually, uh, so Kemet has, when I left, we had 6 million unique part numbers and you could get a part number specific data sheet on all of them. Wow, that's that's fantastic. Now it didn't they didn't all have data like the DC bias, but you know that's a whole other subject. So so this all kind of brings up an interesting question: If ceramic capacitors lose capacitance when you apply voltage, which that's what you do with a capacitor, why do people use them? Right. <laughs> um, so there's a you know there's a couple ways you can mitigate it. the The best way is to simply get a higher rated voltage because it is a, so it's a function, the the DC bias effect is a function of the thickness of the dielectric. And so if you go to a higher rated voltage, it means a thicker dielectric, which means the DC bias is less. And so if you can try to avoid that 50% range, you can actually, you're, you're only down to 80 to uh, 10 to 20%. And so it's a little bit easier to design around. Um, but the other side of it is, even when you look at like, uh, there was this uh, 1206, 6.3 volt, 470 microfarad ceramic capacitor. I mean, it, the thing lost like 99% of its capacitance when you looked at it. Yet, when you applied its full D rating, it was still cheaper. It was still cheaper than, say, a tantalum or tantalum polymer. And so it's like, okay, well, I do need to have four of these, but it's still cheaper than an alternative part of this kind of size and voltage. So to me, it's, and this was sort of my philosophy when I was at, uh, at the capacitor company was let's just give people the data because I think if you at least know what's going on, you can decide, should I design around this or not? Sure. And it, and it sounds like it's, it's, first of all, it's up to the designer to understand that this is a factor that will affect or could affect their design. So if you had a really, I don't know, time sensitive, uh, charging circuit, you wouldn't necessarily want something that changes its value as it charges. No, you, I mean, if you're doing anything like a timing circuit or some kind of filter, uh, you really want to use C0G if you can. C0G is a different class, different material set. Um, it has virtually no measurable DC bias or um, minimal temperature effect, uh, but it comes with a tenth of the capacitance that you can get in the same case of voltage size. So ideally, you want to try to use something like that 
that's ultra stable versus something that's going to change if you cough on it. <laughs> well, and C0Gs come with uh, a little bit more of a price tag on them. Yes, they do. Yeah, yeah. But they're, yeah, and that's totally a volume thing. It's it's funny because there's nothing exotic in their material set. It's just we don't, we don't as an industry, manufacture as many of them. Mm-hmm. So the uh, the funny thing with this voltage bias is uh, we were manufacturing some uh, boards for a for a company, and they were ha- they had some uh, 20, 24 microfarad. I can't remember. It's twenty something microfarad capacitors on the back side of the board, and they were like oh uh, eight oh five or something like that, I, or maybe twelve oh six. Anyways, we were testing them. And they were testing, like the machine was actually measuring the capacitance mm-hmm. and they were measuring 12 microfarad. Yep. And I'm like, oh, I bet you I know what this is. And I dug around, found the DC bias chart and met, and then got the specifications for the tester and the tester is testing it at 1.5 volts and the DC rating was 6.3. And at 1.5 volts, it was this capacitor is already spec to lose 40%. So I'm like, oh, yeah, that's within spec. <laughs> And that was when that customer learned about DC bias of capacitors <laughs> <laughs> is during production. <laughs> so I, I have a follow-up question to verify if, if this was the correct diagnosis. Were these measurements done before or after the reflow oven? Both. Okay. Um, the suspicious thing about that measurement is that most capacitor testers use an AC waveform and not DC. And that's to get rid of the DC bias? This side of DC. I'm not even sure why. I just, I think it's just been, that might be why. Oh, no, that makes sense. It's usually it's like a one volt. It's a one volt AC um, uh, measurement. So, okay. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that story, but I totally thought this was going to have a different ending because the fourth way that ceramics lose capacitance is through aging. And you normally see that when somebody tries to measure the parts after they come out of a reflow oven. Um, over time, ceramics lose capacitance and it's, um, it's in what we call decade hours, which occur at 1, 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000, so on. And I used to get calls from contract manufacturers all the time freaking out because their capacitors were not measuring correctly or filters weren't working correctly as soon as they came out of the reflow oven. And my internal joke was, well, I'd wait two days and call them back and then have them measure it again and they'd be fine. And the reason why is right after during reflow, the capacitors reach their Curie temperature, which causes the barium titanates molecule to shift into a different or phase shift into a different shape. And that changes the permittivity of the part. And so over time it relaxes and then we get the uh, rated capacitance back. But for that first like 10 hours and 100 hours, it was totally normal for the capacitors to be way outside of their, their tolerance band because they were basically too excited. And so that's that's where I thought you were going to go with that one because I I would see that all the time from people measuring stuff right off right off the oven. No, I'd, I've never heard of that. But no, we they were it was tested by the the actual picking place was picking up the parts and okay. doing an e test on them. Okay. And the spec says it was a bias had a DC bias on it one point five volts and I'm like ah oh, yeah so that was an easy one but I've never heard of that that uh re, the reflow thing that's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's called an aging effect, which is a little bit of a misnomer because um, it's not every time the, the, the part sees the Curie temperature, it follows the same curve again. So to me, aging sort of suggests that it degrades over time. And it's really just that the capacitance shifts over time. And so, like I said, 
the magic time is up to about a thousand hours. And then after that, it, it changes like two, two to 3% over like years and tens of years. But we, I used, used to, I mean, when I was an FAE, it was about once a month, I'd get that call of a panicked, um, uh, line assembly person that has boards failing and it's, they just happen to have parts that, that shift it during the reflow. So is that just a common thing then? Is, does that happen all the time, I guess? All, all barium titanates of, um, experience that. Okay. And this is one of those. So we, we talked a little bit a, min, a few minutes ago about C0G and X7R. Um, so let me talk. You'll also see letters like X7R and X5R. And um, they're both, basically they're both barium titanate, but X5R is rated for a lower temperature range. It's only up to 85 instead of 125. And one of the tricks to sort of do that is you make the dielectric layers thinner, which is why X5Rs will tend to have slightly more capacitance than an X7R. Um, Another trick is that uh, because they're sort of not meant for automotive type applications, their referee time or measurement time is usually around 48 hours. And so that's just something else to watch for is if you use X5R versus X7R, uh, when it comes out of the reflow oven, the X5R is rated at 48 hours instead of 1000, which means within the first couple of years, it could actually measure a few microfarads lower than it should have because of this whole aging effect. Uh, for most people, it's probably not that big of a deal to worry about the design until about 10 years. Like if you've got something going into service for 10 years, then I'd worry about aging. Uh, but basically it's when it comes out of reflow, know that the capacitance is going to be off and about 10 years after uh, life, it's going to be, it's going to start drifting down outside of its tolerance range. So that being said, uh, if say you have a design that, that needs measurement testing or calibration, uh, just having the device be cool out of the oven is not enough. Yeah. Uh, well, it would depend on the on the design, but but you you if you have a design that utilizes these capacitors as part of a calibration circuit, it would almost be best to wait a day or two before doing calibration. Ideally, now here the good news is, like I said, this isn't a degradation mechanism, and so it's not that difficult to characterize it. And so I don't think it would be unreasonable to say, okay, for this part number, we've tested it, we've characterized it. Here's the calibration based on all of these factors. It's totally possible to call it out. Um, you know, it, it's not one of these things that has a whole lot of chaos involved in it. But it's all again, it's one of those. If you don't know about it, then it, it can bite you. Once again, it it seems more like one of those things where you're like, why do we buy these caps? <laughs> <laughs> so that's and, a good and, segue to the next question. <laughs> is what do you consider when choosing an alternative dielectric technology for capacitors? So let's say, let's say James here has ter- completely turned you off of ca- ceramic capacitors and you want to use something else. <laughs> I have a, I have an old boss at Kemet that'd be really excited if that was the case. <laughs> um, so let me, yeah. So I don't want to go into a deep dive about all the other dielectrics, but I thought, um, let me at least touch on what do you think about if you're trying to get away from a ceramic in a design, since we do have this shortage happening and you know, there are cases where it's like, Hey, I got to get my, I got to get my board in production. What can I do? Um, so, you know, I think the obvious thing is you look at the specs and people say, okay, well, if I look at capacitance, ESR, ESL, those are going to be the main things you got to watch out for. The, the disappointing thing is that usually I mean, if, if it's a non-critical circuit or non-critical use, okay, 
may just just get whatever ceramic you can get. But like say if you're doing like a PDN or something or a power delivery network, it's going to be really difficult to say swap that ceramic that you spent weeks designing in for something else because you'll you can find the capacitance and you might even find something that has similar ESR, but its its inductance will be nothing like the other part. And so the thing that I wanted to stress is make sure you're watching all three of those parasitics or I guess spec and parasitics, because when you start going say from ceramic to polymer tantalum, which is probably the most likely change, um, you can get close to ceramic ESRs with polymer tantalum, but the inductance is much different between the two. And so you have to take that into account. Is that going to mess up my design or not? Um, And then, yeah, so I, like I said, I just want to sort of mention that real quick because I think a lot of times we think about capacitors as a, as a monolithic component and they're really not. Each dielectric is its own type. Well, and and sort of a, it's both good and a little bit unfortunate, but that's the way we're taught. You know, a capacitor is just a single item. And even if you use like a simulation tool, there might be a difference in the symbol, but there's not going to be a difference in the way the simulation handles it. Yeah, and how many simulation tools take into account DC bias, DC bias or temperature loss, right? Um, oh, and that, that reminds me of another uh, point that I wanted to make is even if you're switching ceramics for from vendor to vendor, um, the thing that I would sort of watch out for there is, um, well, like I said, watch capacitance, ESR, and inductance. Uh, those are going to be the easiest things to compare against. Uh, But I will also tell you, ceramic manufacturers are not the best about characterizing the inductance of their parts. And so it's really helpful if early on when you're setting up your sources that you get second and third sources for your parts and measure them yourself. Because, I mean, an 805 has about the same inductance from vendor A, B, and C, but there's going to be some differences. If you just look at their data sheet, they could be wildly different and it's all about how they got measured. And so it's just another thing to take into account is make sure you've kind of taken due diligence. Yeah. Do your due diligence to take those into account. (laughs) Oh, cool. I've, I've learned, I think my favorite is the, uh, the, the reflow. That's something that completely new. I've never even thought of before. I, I will find, I have a, I know of a data sheet or a application note that covers that. I think you'll enjoy looking through that. I think think it'd be really good for you guys to know about that. Uh, because I'm, I'm, I'm shocked if it hasn't come up yet. Yeah. After five years. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if it hasn't come up yet, you're, you're, it's just a matter of yet. Yes. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) I I know in multiple, multiple times I have you know, taking things right off the, the reflow oven, you know, giving them 20 minutes to cool down and then, you know, fire them up, <laughs> give them a go. Yeah. Actually, since you mentioned that, man, um, let me talk to hobbyists for a second. Cause you know, I've, I've got a toaster oven. I convert it to a reflow oven. Um, and I saw this happen in maker spaces. Please do not open the oven door and just let a massive amount of cold air come rushing in as soon as the board is done. Give it a little bit of time for the, uh, I mean, even just a few seconds of holding the door open to slowly allow the heat to escape because ceramic capacitor manufacturers are not joking about the cooldown rate of their caps. And what makes it even worse is if you thermally crack a ceramic, it could be a while before you know about it. And so one day your circuit's just going to start acting funny and you'll have no clue what happened. Yeah, that's uh, that's the big thing with our our reflow oven profile is making sure that cool down rate is 
set right. And we, yeah, yeah spec it towards uh, ceramic capacitors and ICs. Ceramics don't like to, you know, heat up and cool down real fast. No, it's, not, no, it's, it's almost not like they're made out of ceramic. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing we haven't touched on on ceramic capacitors, though, is also uh, as, as physical cracking through board flexing. And that's another big one that I actually work with our customers a lot when they do enclosure designs. I'm like, you need to move those ceramic capacitors away from those mounting holes because you will have fractures and failures in field because of that. Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah, the number one failure for ceramics is what we call flex cracks. And for for those that aren't familiar, it's basically after the capacitor has been mounted on the board, if the PCB flexes a certain amount, it will literally crack the capacitor. Um, what makes it really insidious is sometimes, depending on the, the amount of flexure, when the part comes back together, the electrodes realign or maybe one or two electrodes don't connect. And so you don't notice right away there's a problem. And so it's not until some moisture seeps in and causes a short, which then causes an open after some explosive results that you realize something happened. Um, (laughs) Can I tell you guys a story about flex cracks? Oh yeah, totally. Oh, please. All right. So I had a customer and they were experiencing failures and there's a couple of telltale signs that I would ask questions about to find out. So I could in my mind say, okay, is there a quality problem or are they flexing them? Um, and 90% of the time they're flexing them. So the first question was, is it the same part in the same position on the board? And the answer was yes. And in fact, they had two copy or the part in two places, but only one was failing. So that's red flag number one. Number two was, is it near a mounting screw or mounting hole? And they said, yes. Okay. Flag number two. Is it near a connector? Yes. Okay. Well, there's number three. Is it near the edge of the board? No. And that's how I know it's not a flex crack. It's like, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, you, you got you got three out of four on that test, and that's that's not a good good test, or that's not a good grade for that test. And so they went so far as they took capacitors directly off of a reel, sent them to a third-party test lab, and had them uh, do cross-sections to see how many of the capacitors had flex cracks in them from the factory because they could not accept that the parts were getting cracked after they went on the board, which is <laughs> from a manufacturer's perspective, flex cracks are my, were my favorite failure because they're the only failure, pretty much the only failure where there's nothing we can do to cause it. It's, it's all on the customer. So this was interesting. So the guy calls me up one day he says, James, I got good and bad news. Um, the bad news is I got back the test results and I'm pretty disappointed across the board. He sent in our caps with four other manufacturers and I know three of them would be what I would call tier one. So like a Murata or a, a TDK style company. And then one was like a Asian company I had not heard of. So you had four tier one and one questionable manufacturer. It's like great news. Only 15% of your parts have flex cracks in them. The worst case, 50% of the parts had flex cracks in them. And I was like, okay, I want you to step back and think about this for a second. You're telling me that on average, the number one capacitor manufacturers in the world ship 20% of their parts broken. Huh, I guess that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? (laughs) And it turned out they had cranked up their microscope so high, they were actually seeing the grain boundaries between the, uh, the, the, the ceramic uh, particles. 
and counting those as flex cracks when it's just like a perfectly normal structure. Like how, right. So, so at that point I'm like, look, let me come to your manufacturing site and see what you guys are doing. So we met at their, um, at their, I think they were, they were actually doing it in house, uh, at this point. And so, um, he's walking me through the line and I'm like, yeah, I, we got to the last step. I'm like, yeah, I don't see what's going on. Well, it was a, the device so that I don't accidentally identify them was about the size of a palm and it only had a couple of ICs on it. Plus the, 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 the passives. And then they took a plastic cover and snapped it onto the board. And I watched as this guy literally bent the board around his hand as he snapped the cover on. And I mean, I could actually watch the parts break and it's like, okay, I think I found the problem guys. Um, and it was like, it wasn't until then because he had never actually come and looked at it that he's like, Oh yeah, I guess they're bending the boards during manufacturing. I was like, man, that sounds a lot like something I said about two weeks ago. (laughs) (laughs) So here's the, here's the, the, the final like mic drop part. Um, the size of the capacitors he was cracking were 0402s which meant they were bending, like I said, they were bending them so far that they were able to crack one of the smaller components. Mm. Yeah, because that's actually the thing is with flux cracking is it's usually the larger packages are normally susceptible to them and not the smaller ones. Yep, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, usually it's like 0603 is, I would call it questionable, 0805 and bigger, those are always susceptible. Same thing with hand soldering. Um, be really careful with anything bigger than an 805 or bigger that you don't let your soldering iron touch the terminal because they're just big enough that you'll actually get a thermal gradient and it'll crack along the electrode pattern. I need to resolder all my boards I did by hand then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't know that one. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I'll, I'll try to find a link for I'll see if uh, if the paper paper is still up, because this will be really fun for uh, you guys as well as the listeners. Um, Kemet has a really old application note about hand soldering. And to give you an idea how old it is, it starts out with um, surface mount technology is a new method for mounting parts to a board that may or may not take off. <laughs> <laughs> may or may not. <laughs> That's great. Well, so I, I think above and beyond that, there's there's another thing that is super common that we all kind of gloss over and I'm sure we've all been there, but panelizing your boards up in an array and V scoring in between the boards and Mm -hmm. then just taking the whole panel and bending Mm -hmm. it over. I I have, I've personally broken things (laughs) that way. Uh, And and V score was never really intended to just be held in your hand and snapped apart. It was, it was meant to actually be cut on there uh, with a, with a proper cutting tool. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, yeah, that I would say, um, outside of just absolute abuse, like the story I told, that's probably the most common reason that they get cracked is V scoring. Um, now there is good news. You can do a little bit about it to sort of mitigate the problem. Um, there are ceramics with flexible terminations and so flexible termination, flexi cap, uh, there's probably a couple other words, but if you see something that talks about flexible termination, it's depending on the manufacturer, it's basically like a silver epoxy that is in the, the end termination that actually gives the, the solder point a little bit of pliability. And so uh, generally parts that have a flexible termination will be able to be bent. The board can be bent twice as much before the part cracks. And so that actually mitigates a huge amount of this problem if you just get flexible terminations. Uh, in fact, most automotive customers 
get flexible termination just because they'd rather have the reliability, the added reliability versus dealing with the cost. Hmm. Sounds expensive. They're, they're usually about 20% more okay. on if, if you just kind of pick a number. And like I said, it's, it's one of these things where, you know, yeah, sure. And if you're building an Arduino, who cares? Um, but you know, if you've got a board and you know, it's going to be V scored or you've done your pilot run and 10% of the boards had random ceramic failures, it'd be worth built doing a build with the uh, flexible terminations to see if that changes. Yeah. It improves your yield. Mm-hmm. <laughs> cool. So I want to go over a couple of questions because we're running up okay. to like an hour now. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's no, completely cool. I, this is awesome. Um, so I'm going to run through some quick questions. So this would be kind of like the RFO section if it was just Stephen and I. So it's it's the RCO, rapid capacitor, whatever. Opinions? All right. Sure. <laughs> it seems like the capacitors have opinions about temperature and, and voltage dependence. Their yeah. own personal opinions about them. <laughs> I'll tell you how I personally feel about each of the different types I talk about. <laughs> yeah, so we, we asked right. our, we asked some people on the Slack channel if they had questions, and it was just sort of like a earlier today. I was just like, "Hey, if anyone has any questions," mm-hmm. and there was like tons of questions that just exploded into the channel. It's like, "Okay, great, we got the cap guy on. <laughs> get your get your questions out." Now. <laughs> so, hey, before before you guys get to the questions, I just wanted to give you a like a plug on your show for your Slack channel, because, um, you know, I know a handful of people that would probably enjoy like some of the conversations that happen, but they're like, Oh, I don't want to install another app or whatever, but I just wanted to say it's totally worth it. I think it's, it's a really good place to kind of hang out and ask questions. Um, I don't talk a lot there, but I see a lot of really interesting things come by. So if listeners aren't already in the Slack, they need to think about it. Look at that. We don't even have to plug our own stuff anymore. (laughs) Uh, thank you, James. <laughs> All right. So the first question is, uh, this person's asking insights into selecting bootstrap caps for high frequency, high voltage H bridges. So my question is, though, is what's a bootstrap cap? Because I've never heard of that term before. Yeah. So that. So this is this is a so normally when I would do like seminars, I'd always tell people up front that when you ask a question, don't be surprised if I answer it depends. And this this question actually makes me go immediately to it depends. Um, so bootstrap, right? That's like um, when I read this, what I'm thinking of is probably a situation where they've got a MOSFET that they're trying to turn on. And so they're using a cap to be, basically act as a um, voltage doubler to make sure that the MOSFET turns all the way on. I don't know if that's actually what's going on. So I could be wrong about that, but I do know when people were selecting caps for H-Bridge designs, the biggest issue we would run into is they would forget that at some point the cap might see twice the applied voltage, and so they would not spec the voltage high enough. And so just as a general, okay, one thing I do know to, to look at is make sure you're looking at a cap that has at least twice the rated voltage or the twice the applied voltage for its rating. Um, if possible, whenever I hear high voltage, high frequency, and if we're thinking, talking about ceramic capacitors, if possible, use C0G. Since it doesn't have a voltage bias effect, it is less likely to break due to electrostiction. Oh, what's electrostiction? That sounds, it's not, that's a pretty rad term. Uh, I, I might've actually said it slightly wrong. It's electrostriction. It's the opposite of piezoelectricity. Makes electricity when it doesn't vibrate? Uh, uh, now I'm going to get them backwards and you guys are going to get all kinds of emails about how dumb I am. Uh, so piezo is 
So one of them is you apply a voltage and the part moves. Yes. I want to say that's piezo. Yes. And the other is if you move the part, it generates electricity. That's electrostiction. Okay. And so what actually happens is, um, let's say in a in a high voltage event, so the high voltage causes the capacitor to uh, vibrate, which then in then in turn the vibration as it calms back down starts to generate a voltage, and then you get like twice the event, and it causes the whole thing to crack. Oh, oh it like cascades okay. and runs away, sort of. Yeah, hmm. yeah. And I'll I'll finish that by saying that's my explanation, and I wouldn't be surprised if I'm wrong, but that's how I that's like what I understand is going on, and like in a um, I say an event, so like an ESD event, that's that's what's causing the cap to break down. So that's kind of similar to, well, I, I'm going to say kind of similar because I could be completely wrong here too. It's like a inductor or a coil, and when you shut off the, the, the voltage to it, it spikes. You have this flyback event. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's something along those lines. And my guess is there's like 500 events that are happening that add up to something else, but that's that's my understanding is it's sort of like like an inductor. Cool. All right, so the double your rating on your voltage and pick uh CZOG dielectric. <clears throat> C0 thing on that actually. Oh, CZOG. Real uh, qu- uh, easy way to select bootstrap caps is uh a lot of times manufacturers will just give a bill of materials for an example design and use that cap. <laughs> I like that answer. Use WebBench. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, on my side note on my YouTube channel, I did a, a couple of videos on linear and switching regulators. And anytime someone says, will you show how to design a switching regulator? I just give a link to TI's WebBench because that's, that's how I do it. Yeah, that's how I do it too. I'm not ashamed. Yeah, I did it the other day. okay cool um so next question this kind of goes towards the where did the mlccs go this is what footprint should we be designing for going forward presumably different sizes for decoupling versus bulk on power inputs for getting different esrs um i'm gonna here's where i'll take the the answer to that one uh pick a case size so for for bulk um i mean if in a lot of ways, it doesn't really matter, right? All you care about is you want to have a lot of capacitance. So get large case sizes so that you get a reduced voltage bias effect and you get more effective capacitance. If you're designing a decoupling network or you're trying to do filtering like on a power distribution network, um, one recommendation I might suggest is pick a case size like 0402, 0603, or 805, whatever you're comfortable working with or your manufacturer's comfortable placing and sort of stick with it because... The inductance for individual case sizes is going to be roughly the same regardless of the capacitance. And so you can really get into a a kind of a rhythm of, okay, well, I know what the inductance of this package is going to be. So I get in, you'll have a good feel for what capacitances should you be picking. Um, If you try to say, okay, do 805 this time and 0402 next time, it it just gets to be a mess. So that, that would be my recommendation. Um, and I have a kind of, at least for the first one, first question, part of that is I've been doing a lot of research on what parts companies are like getting rid of and which ones are bringing like new parts are bringing online. And there has been a reduction in like 0805s. Yep. That seems to be the one that's kind of dying out. Um, and then 0603 and 0402s are going way up. But 1206 and bigger seem to be sticking around because they're kind of, you need them for bulk capacitance. Or high voltage. But that 0805s are kind of dying. 
Um, and there's been a big cut in like different voltages and different um, dielectrics too. So like instead of having this like you can get a 6.3 volt in, in, in everything, right? They're kind of cutting that down to, you know, more specific things, I guess. Cutting their catalog down. Well, I wouldn't say cutting. Trimming is probably a better term. <laughs> well, no pun intended. Okay, yeah. okay. Little, little, tiny side note, and we I, I apologize if we could, you know, talk about this for a long time, and maybe I'm just looking for, like, a quick answer on this. But when we use the word bulk for bulk capacitance, you could pick a 10 microfarad aluminum electrolytic, or you could pick a 10 microfarad 1206 ceramic. And let's say that's the input mm-hmm. to your 3.3 volt regulator or whatever you're messing with. Which one do I go with? Which one should I pick? That's a great question. And the answer is it depends. <laughs> <laughs> so the, 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 key, the key point of your question was that it's on the input side. And the thing is, input side really doesn't care as much about the parasitics. Now, Calm down for the people that have had issues where they pick too much ESR or something. In general, on the input side of a regulator, the ESR is not going to be a huge problem. It's at most going to cause a voltage drop, which you can probably account for anyway. I mean, the whole idea is you're probably, you're boosting or bucking it anyway. So what difference does it make? Um, I think when you start getting into, say, again, on the input side, that's when you start to get into this whole other mess of, okay, what about lifetime? Because if you get a wet aluminum electrolytic, it's going to have a very defined um, operational lifetime. If you go with, say, an aluminum polymer, it will have nearly infinite lifetime and much lower ESR, but it's going to cost a little bit more. And so I think you just have to start to weigh in, okay, is there another secondary thing other than capacitance that I should take into account for, say, input side? Um, and that that's where your sort of your judgment has to come in. Um, I don't know if that that actually answers your question. No, that's that's perfect. I love it. Next question. <laughs> All right. So we already <laughs> talked about PCB flex, so I'm going to skip that. Uh, let's see. This next one is generally uh, general rules of thumb on choosing appropriate packages based on desired voltage rating and capacitance. I think you've covered that already. It's kind of like um, pick the largest package, right? Yeah, so that you can fit. Um, it's been a while since I said this, so let me see if I get it right on the first try. Um, so generally, and it this sort of applies to all the technologies. First, look for the capacitance, and you look for the capacitance you need. Next, pick the highest rated voltage that you can in the smallest case size possible. Um, and the kind of the knob you can twist there is if you don't, if you're not really size constrained, then get a larger larger capacitor because then you'll either get more capacitance or higher rate of voltage. If you are size constrained, then pick the pick a cap that fits into your size constraint. And then within that, get the highest rate of voltage that you can for whatever your capacitance need is. It's a good answer. Um, so then the next question is, I think we touched on this a little bit is what is the fundamental physical mechanism behind this voltage dependent capacitance drop or DC bias? <laughs> <laughs> and I like the answer that someone gave in the Slack channel, which was spooky quantum bullshit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's actually okay. So first note for listeners, um, 
I do have, or Kemet has a video where a guy named James that is a bald guy with the Twitter name Bald Engineer talks about this with some really fantastically drawn graphics. I mean, they're just some of the best graphics ever made. Um, so, okay, now that that's over. Um, so here, here's the short version of what's going on. Um, it is not, it's not actually quantum. Um, it's entirely um, chemical based. So like I said, barium titanate is made out of, um, or uh, most ceramics are made out of barium titanate. And in its natural form, it's a cubic molecule, which is basically the, um, the points of the cube are all barium with a titanium ion in the middle. And it turns out the titanium doesn't fit inside the molecule. And so it sort of sticks to one of the corners, which gives the whole molecule a dipole or its ability to hold a charge. And so remember earlier, I was talking about the crazy test where they were, they were trying to find flex cracks, but what they actually measured were grain boundaries. Well, barium tiny is a crystalline material. And so it forms like these little, like little chunks inside of the monolithic material. And so within those kind of grains, um, the molecules sort of self-align some direction and, you know, there's, it's virtually random. So that's called self-polarization because all of the parts are sort of naturally lying whatever way they fit. And that gives it gives the material really high permittivity, which equates to a high dielectric constant, which people, which actually dielectric constant means relative uh, is the permittivity for a um, capacitor, but it turns out it's not constant. So we all stopped using dielectric constant. Um, so, well, nothing is applied. Everything's kind of sitting in its natural state. That's why we get this really high capacitance. As a electric field is applied, that titanium um, ion gets pulled in the direction of the electric field, which then causes these domains, which were kind of, which were random to start uh, polarizing in the same direction. And as they polarize, the permittivity drops, which means the capacitance of the material drops. See? Simple. <laughs> so that is actually a material problem, not a uh, unknown Correct. quantum bullshit problem. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, and it's actually it's it's totally it's like it's it's a really well understood mechanism. So it's you know there there's a couple other things that I've I've learned about that. It's like well, two really intelligent, just brilliant, not not intelligent. That's not the word I want to use. Two brilliant material scientists have given me fantastic explanations on why this phenomenon occurs and they completely disagree with each other, but they both sound so correct. It's like, how can they not be both right? <laughs> That's great. Uh, so the second last question I have is why dielectric Y5V? A long time ago, that was the best we could do for high capacitance in ceramics, but formulations have gotten so good. Layers have gotten so thin. Processes are so robust today that it's it's most of the time that you buy a Wi-Fi V, it's actually going to be an X5R. It's basically around so that uh, manufacturers can offer a low price point to whoever. Um, my recommendation is never, ever design in Wi-Fi V or Z5U um, or things like that. Stick to X5, X7 something. You know, uh, maybe this doesn't apply to um, surface mount components, but I saw, I saw one that I, I haven't seen before just the other day was SL zero or something, which 
I saw it in uh, through hole ceramic capacitors, uh, not not surface mount. And it, and and when I looked it up, I believe it was about as awful as you can possibly. It, it basically is this thing is a capacitor when it feels like being a capacitor. Like it, it like it was the, the specs were all over the place, and I hadn't seen that. Yeah, I I I've never heard that one, and I'm just trying to think like this. This is all based on like a chart, and I just those letters are not. <laughs> none of those sound like good letters. <laughs> sure. Well, and and they they're not. I've 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 yeah. I found a data sheet for a Visha uh, through hole that's got an SL zero. So I'll share that around with everyone after the podcast. I, I, yeah. Just real quick. Is there anything on it that says like class one, class two, class three, or yes. four? Yeah. It says class one, class two, class three. It says general, uh, it's a, it's a family data sheet. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so it's got class one, class two, class three, and then it's got, uh, they make this type in SL zero S three N X seven R Y five P X five F Z five U Y five V. It's all over. So the you guys ever have like my leftover? tongue is just going a little crazy. You guys ever have like leftovers night um, at your house where you just pull out everything in the fridge and make try to make a meal out of it? How was that? <laughs> I, I think that's what these guys did. They just took whatever powders were left over from the normal manufacturing, mixed it up, and like, well, that's what <laughs> it is. Super secret badge. It measured 0.1 microfarad. Yeah. <laughs> once, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay, so la- last question, James, is uh, what do you have any hair care tips? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, okay. Um, growing up, my brother was almost ten years older than I am, and he lost his hair almost exactly as he turned twenty-one. And so when I made it to about 25 without losing my hair, I thought for sure I, I've got this down. And then it's like as soon as my next birthday happened, it was it was all turtles from there. And so I had a really close friend who told me wearing hats is the key to losing hair. And it turns out, no, it's all genetic because I never wore a hat. My, or my brother always no, – my brother never wore hats. I always wore hats. The hats had nothing to do with it. Um, so – so no, I have no hair care tips. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the best place to find me is baldengineer.com. It's my blog where I kind of post everything that I'm doing as well as new tutorials. I have a YouTube channel called Ad Ohms. Um, I'm also on the Element 14 Presents YouTube channel on occasion. And if you happen to be in Minneapolis the last week of uh, October, I'll be at the Embedded Systems Conference. Anything you else you want to add, James, or do you want to sign us out? I uh, just want to thank you guys for letting me come on. This was really fun. Um, you know, I think one thing I'd like to say to everybody listening, don't be afraid to ask questions about capacitors. Um, as you can probably tell from this conversation, even people that claim to be experts get kind of flustered around things. And what I noticed in my career was there was always an engineer who was afraid that they're going to sound stupid. And the thing is, is when it comes to capacitors, it's one of the few electrical engineering topics where there is I promise somebody else around you that has just as little clue as you do. So don't be afraid to ask questions about something as simple as a capacitor. And with that, you want to sign us out, James? All right. That was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, James Lewis. And we were your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank 
thank you. Yes, you are listener for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project topic or sweet capacitor that you want Stephen and I to discuss, tweet us at MacFab or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel that James conveniently let us know about. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest map episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen as it helps this show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.